Hi, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast series on the biblical worldview of the spirit realm. This is episode number seven, and today I'll be pointing out places in the Bible that speak of beings in the supernatural realm having been given authority over physical places by God. Well, Jesus was once taken to a high mountain by the devil and shown all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory. The devil then offered all of it to Jesus, if only he would worship him. Here's the Gospel of Matthew's accounting of this event. This is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So here's my question for you. How is it that Satan could make such an offer to Jesus if the world was not his to give? After all, Jesus could have very easily answered back to Satan that the world was not his to give, but he didn't. In three different places within the Gospel of John, Jesus recognized someone besides Yahweh as the ruler or chief prince of this world. The Apostle Paul acknowledged a God other than Yahweh as being the God of this world or age. When did it happen that any God besides Yahweh could be considered the God or ruler of this world? If it was always this way, why is there no mention of it in the creation account? God, being all-powerful and sovereign, could not have had control of the world taken away from him against his will. He could not have lost control. This is the story of how Satan and the angels God selected were given authority over the world, the physical nations of the earth by Yahweh, and the plan that God has always had, which involves Jesus taking that authority back from them. When did this all start? For now, let's go back to the time following Noah's flood. Humans had become completely morally degenerate. I'll talk about some forms of what that took, which involved the spirit realm, in an upcoming podcast. But following the flood, humans again started going down the wrong road and doing evil from God's perspective, which is the only perspective that counts. That situation is recorded in Genesis chapter 11. This is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, 
and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Once again, that was Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. It's significant here to note, considering that we've been talking about how God is not alone in the spirit realm, and that He presides over a divine council, that God appears to be talking to others when He says to someone or someones, in verse 6, Look, they are one people and have one language. It's as though he's explaining to others the reasons behind what he's about to do. Perhaps we are privy here to the notes, so to speak, of a divine assembly or council. Then in verse 6, he appears to say again to others, Let us go down and confound their language. He doesn't only say, I'm going to go down and confound their language, but he invites others to go with him. Well, in response to humans building the Tower of Babel and what that represented, God confused mankind's language and divided them into nations according to their languages, dispersing them throughout the world. But it wasn't only humans simply thinking they could ascend to the heavens that caused Yahweh to take the actions that he did. It was that people had turned to worshiping and serving the creation rather than the Creator. They had taken their destiny out of God's hands and placed it in their own. Listen to the insight the Apostle Paul has to give us regarding the question as to why God would disinherit the nations. This is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Part of the reason why God disinherited the nations is because they did not see fit to acknowledge Him. The ramifications of disinheriting them was that their debased minds took over and caused all sorts of nasty behaviors. Many have based dating events in the Bible on James Usher's timeline. Not to say that Usher's timeline is completely correct, but as a point of reference, this event, according to his chronology, would have taken place about 2242 B.C., or around 2200 years before Jesus, or over 4300 years ago from our time. One interesting thing about the story of the Tower of Babel is it starts off in chapter 11 by saying, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. But how could that be, since in the preceding chapter, chapter 10, which we'll be talking more about, it says in verse 4 that the coastal peoples spread in their lands, 
each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. This is simply explained by understanding that the purpose of chapter 10 is to, following the death of Noah account in chapter 9, provide information regarding where all the people descending from Noah spread out to in the course of time. Chapter 10 is a genealogical summary which encapsulates many years and generations following Noah into the future. It even includes a reference to the Philistines who didn't come about until much later. So then chapter 11, containing the Tower of Babel account, is a story that takes place within the period represented by chapter 10. Chapter 11 provides the reason behind why people spread in their lands, each with his own language. The information given in chapter 10 is often referred to as the Table of Nations. Most who count the nations mentioned in chapter 10 say that there are 70 represented, including 26 from the line of Noah's son Shem, 30 from his son Ham, and 14 from his son Japheth. Others who count in slightly a different way come up with 72 nations. The 70 men who are named in Genesis 10 are considered to be the father of different people or nations. The formation of new languages and the spreading of the people ties the table of nations found in chapter 10 to what happens at the Tower of Babel. All this to say that it appears that because of the Tower of Babel, the people of the whole earth who had one language were initially divided up into 70 different nations or clans. That's really all the information we're left with in the book of Genesis regarding the dividing of nations, God's motivation behind doing so, and how many nations were initially involved. But then, years later, Moses was given a prophetic song by God just prior to Moses dying. I've talked about this song before. Moses was to recite this song to the people. They were to recall this song as a reminder in the future as to why they were encountering difficulties. The content of this song should not have been a surprise to the people who would hear it. The knowledge represented in the song had already been passed down. The song itself testifies to this when it says in verse 7, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. What is it the people should remember? What is it the elders and your fathers know about? Moses' song goes on to tell us, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob His allotted heritage. That's found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. This passage specifically addresses the time when God divided mankind, as it says, God gave to the nations their inheritance when He divided mankind. Receiving their inheritance means He gave them what they deserved, as He disinherited them and only kept for Himself Israel. This portion of Moses' song, which refers to the dividing of mankind, is describing the Tower of Babel incident. That's when God put an end to the cooperative work of the people, confounded their language, 
divided, and dispersed them. So here, in Moses' song, we're given additional information about what happened in the land of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was being constructed. We're told that God switched things up in the spirit realm by dividing the nations according to the number of the sons of God. When this occurred, God directly tied the unseen realm to the physical. Yahweh placed these sons of God who still answered to Him over the nations. When God did this, He informed all involved that He would be taking a special people for Himself, the people of Jacob, also known as Israel. Again, using Usher's numbers, Moses passed this song on in writing about 791 years after the Tower of Babel incident. So, by the time this song was revealed through Moses, the nations had already been placed in the hands of the order of spirit beings known as the Sons of God for close to 800 years. Dropping into the weeds for a couple of minutes here, the identification of the Sons of God once again becomes important. If you listened to the last episode, and I didn't put you to sleep, you should now be familiar with the term Sons of God, or Bene Elohim, and familiar with some of the arguments for and against the sons of God being heavenly beings. You may recall in Deuteronomy 32 that the Masoretic text contains the words sons of Israel rather than sons of God. Most translations of the Septuagint are literally translated as the angels of God, with a few others translating it as sons of God. Two underlying Hebrew texts supporting the Septuagint version were found at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The bottom line is that modern translations that depend on the Septuagint translate the passage, Sons of God, and those that rely on the Masoretic text translated as the Sons of Israel. This, of course, is no small difference. Depending on which translation you rely on, it can take your mind in two entirely different directions. Are we talking about people, or are we talking about angelic beings? There's a great deal of debate between textual experts over this passage as to which version should be used. I myself maintain respect for both translations because there's not overwhelming evidence within the text itself to show which translation should be relied on. Yet, I have reasons why I believe the Sons of God translation is the more accurate and reliable. First, I'll not go over it in detail again, but because of the things I previously discussed in the last episode, I don't have a great deal of confidence in the Masoretic text when it specifically comes to its treatment of the term sons of God. The Hebrew translators had an agenda in the words they chose. Next, there are logic arguments against the Masoretic sons of Israel translation. Finally, the Sons of God translation fits in better with what's going on in the greater scope of the Bible when we consider other passages referencing divine beings who have some sort of geographical authority that we'll be talking about. Deuteronomy 32 should not be considered only in the vacuum of strict textual analysis, but should be considered as part of the bigger biblical context. After all, as Psalms 119 tells us, the sum of your word, Lord, is truth. 
Regarding the logic arguments against the term sons of Israel, first, if that version is correct, it's odd that the nations were divided around the time of the Tower of Babel incident according to the number of the sons of Israel, somewhere between four and six hundred years before Jacob, or Israel, was even born. However, even though this does not make sense to me, it may have made sense to God since he knew what his plans were and that some guy named Israel would eventually be born. In fairness, God said that he set the nation of Israel apart for himself, which also did not exist at the time of Babel. It's also odd that Israel is not listed in the table of nations among the 70 that are named. It's kept completely separate from the rest. Why it's separate is because Israel was to be set aside as Yahweh's portion. If Israel was to be Yahweh's portion, we need to ask, who did the rest of the nations belong to, if not Yahweh? Did the nations belong to the sons of Israel? That doesn't make any sense. There were no sons of Israel at that time for any nation to belong to. And if there were sons of Israel and the rest of the nations were subject to them, how would it be that Israel was set apart and different than the nations, who this theory says that the sons of Israel inherited? It also doesn't make any sense that God was in authority over Israel, but the human descendants of Israel would be over the rest of the Gentile nations. Clearly, that's not what we see occurring in the Old Testament. Israel was persecuted by the nations. Although Israel conquered the previous inhabitants of the region of Canaan, they were never in authority over the nations of the earth. Fitting into the greater context of the Bible, we know that in the beginning, all of creation could have only been under God's and no one else's direct authority. However, by the first century AD, we see in Scripture that the earth had become known as Satan's kingdom. Something happened in between. What happened was what occurred during the Babel incident, which took place in conjunction with what looks like a divine council meeting. As the nations were divided, it reads as though what occurred involved not only Yahweh, but a group that he was interacting with and involving. Later, we see God chastising the angelic sons of God in Psalms 82 for showing partiality to the wicked and not accomplishing what God had given them to do. Yahweh had clearly given this group he was addressing in Psalm 82 authority over the nations of the earth. Next, in the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, we see divine beings referred to as princes and kings over different geographical regions of the earth. And throughout the Old Testament, we see all the nations worshiping the many false gods associated with their lands, just as the Song of Moses warned. Finally, we have New Testament scripture referring to Satan as the god of this world, and Paul specifically writing about divine beings such as principalities and powers that have authority over what we see happening in the world. The terms used by Paul were familiar terms both in the Bible and secular writings associated with physical geographical domain rulership, like principalities, powers, dominions, and thrones. However, there is no reason to think that these terms should be thought of as exclusive to the physical realm. So all these things together demonstrate that God placed divine authorities over the earth.
all things being equal about which way to translate Deuteronomy 32, translating it as the sons of God being the ones in authority over the nations and not the sons of Israel, is the best fit. If the sons of God translation is correct, as I believe it is, Yahweh, who is the only infinite, transcendent, omnipotent, and omniscient God, placed a layer of separation between himself and all the nations, except for the new nation he would create from the descendants of Jacob. He did this because of the actions the inhabitants of the earth were taking. The final tipping point was to build a tower in order to attempt to ascend to the heavens themselves, rather than rely on and worship the one who made the heavens. That God would separate himself from the nations should not come as a shock to us. He placed a layer of separation between himself and Adam and Eve after they sinned. He ejected them from the garden. He separated himself from Cain after he killed his brother, cursing and marking him. He judged the nations, killing all but eight people with a flood. And after Babel, he confused people's language and sent them packing. Keeping in mind God is still completely sovereign, he gave other heavenly beings authority over the nations, just as he gives human government officials their authority. It's at this point where God hands over the nations to the sons of God to supervise that the story in the Bible moves from focusing on all of mankind to narrowing its focus on one nation, those people who would descend from Abraham's grandson, Israel. Please don't misunderstand here. God had not failed to maintain control of the nations, and so he gave up on them. The actions he took fit into his long-term plan that the Apostle Paul called the mystery. I'll talk about that in a bit. What God was doing here was giving the nations what they deserved, separation from him. They wanted to serve someone other than him. He put other beings between him and them. I'm going to back up for just a second here to further demonstrate that the sons or angels of God version of how we read the Song of Moses is correct, and it's nothing new. I'm going to read from the Palestinian Targum. The Targum was a translation and interpretation of the Old Testament from classic Hebrew into Aramaic. It came about around the first century AD when classic Hebrew was declining in favor of Aramaic. The Targum was originally intended to only be given orally and not distributed in written form. It was prohibited to do so. There were as many versions of the Targum as there were those interpreting and reading the Old Testament to others, translating it from Hebrew into Aramaic. Well, eventually, copies of some of the more popular versions of the Targum got out. This Palestinian version that I'm going to read from translates this portion of the Song of Moses this way. When the Most High made allotment of the world unto the nations which proceeded from the sons of Noah, in the separation of the writings and languages of the children of men at the time of division, he cast the lot among the seventy angels, the princes of the nations with whom the revelation to oversee the city, even at that time he established the limits of the nations according to the sum of the number of the seventy souls of Israel who went down into Mizraim. 
Now, you kind of got to read that and slow it down to really understand it. But to boil this down, this version of the Targum calls 70 angels the princes of the nations. Early Christians following the New Testament era certainly believed that the Gentile nations had angelic beings placed over them because of what happened at Babel. That's not to say that the early Christians or the church fathers had the authority to say what's right and to tell us what's right. It's only to say what the early Christians believed. One of the clearest references to these heavenly princes who are over earthly regions is found in Daniel chapter 10. There, the passage records an incident where, after praying for 21 days, Daniel was visited by an angel from heaven. This may have been the angel Gabriel, who had twice before visited Daniel, but this passage doesn't identify the angel, so we can't be sure. This is what Daniel saw. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. That's found in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. No one but Daniel could see the angel. After falling down as though he were dead, the angel revived Daniel and said the following. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. That's Daniel chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. The spiritual being sent to Daniel, an angel, maybe Gabriel, was detained by another spiritual being referred to as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. The reason the angel was able to get away is because one of the high-ranking chief princes, Michael, came to the angel's aid. Michael is later identified as the prince presiding over Daniel's own nation. That nation, of course, is Israel. Then the passage says that the messenger sent from heaven was left with the kings of Persia. Keeping in mind there is no human, even a king, that could possibly contain or lock up a spiritual being. All these titles represent high-ranking spiritual beings that the angel talking to Daniel associated with a physical geographic region. Before the angel left Daniel, he informed him that he, the angel, was off to again fight against the prince of Persia. And after that, he said yet another spiritual being with a royal rank, the prince of Greece, will come. The angel finally informed Daniel that it was the chief prince, Michael, and himself who were the only ones allocated by God to contend against these opposing supernatural beings. What were these spiritual confrontations about? 
It's likely the princes of Persia and Greece wanted to thwart the effort of the angel getting a message through to Daniel because it had to do with the plans of God pertaining to the geographic regions they were in authority over, Persia and Greece. The angel and Michael were representing the sovereign God Yahweh's will to get a message through to Daniel. And yet, the angel was detained. It's not that God needed a heavenly messenger. It's not that he could not have merely spoken a word and instantly put down the effort of the prince of Persia to delay his message getting through to Daniel. He could have placed everything Daniel needed to know instantly in Daniel's mind if he would have wanted to. However, what occurred, the spiritual conflict that took place, is the way God decided the divine drama would play out according to the way that he created the supernatural realm to operate. There are physical battles that take place at the command of God recorded in the Bible. In the same way, as this account demonstrates, God sometimes accomplishes his business through supernatural conflicts. Isaiah chapter 14 contains a prophetic passage regarding a being referred to as the King of Babylon. Although he may be thought of as one part of the perhaps triple entendre, this prophetic passage is not about the king of Babylon who ruled during the exile of the Israelites to Babylon. This prophetic passage finds itself in the context of the end of the age. Chapter 11 and 12 of Isaiah talk about the coming of the Messiah at the end of this age, the one who is called the root of Jesse, that's Jesus. His coming will mark the beginning of a golden age in Israel. Chapter 13 speaks of events that occur during the day of the Lord. It refers to an event in the heavens that's paralleled in Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 6. Those events are associated with the final signs that take place just before Jesus returns. So, it's in the context of the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus that the beginning of chapter 14 takes place. It's providing details about a time that's yet in the future, a time that's never existed in the past. Once Jesus has returned and taken control of Israel and peace is established, the what's called taunt in this passage will be taken up against the one called the king of Babylon, who by that time will have been defeated. This king is said to have fallen from heaven and cast down to the ground. After he was cast down, he aspired to ascend back to heaven above the stars. Remember, stars are often symbolic language for angelic beings. But he not only aspired to ascend above the stars, he wanted to sit on a throne on the Mount of Assembly and make himself like the Most High. The phrase, ascend above the heights of the clouds, might seem redundant after already ascending above the stars, until you come to know that the Most High God was also known as the Cloud Rider in ancient cultures. The King of Babylon arrogantly seeks to rise to a level even above the Cloud Rider. Many think that the King of Babylon represents Satan, because of his arrogance and the fact that he was cast down from heaven to the earth. I consider that to be well in the realm of possibility. However, I think it's also in the realm of possibility that this is another high-ranking and important regional principality. Or, the king of Babylon could represent Satan's puppet, the Antichrist, at the end of this age. But Babylon is an important place in prophetic scripture. It represents the region of Babel. 
Babylon represents the key evil kingdom in the book of Revelation. It's ultimately destroyed. The kingdom of Babylon is represented by one of the heads of the beast in the book of Revelation. Whether or not the king of Babylon represents Satan, or the chief prince or archon of Babylon, or a future antichrist, or all three, this is not a literal earthly king that has ever existed in history. Now let's talk about the king of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, starting with verse 11, is a prophecy against yet another angelic prince, the prince of Tyre. Tyre was a city which was located on the east coast of the Mediterranean in what is now the nation of Lebanon. Based on the text contained in verses 1 to 10, there likely was an actual king of Tyre who was a very ungodly man. But as prophetic double entendres go, the prince of Tyre also refers to a being that no physical man could ever qualify to be. It describes his rebellion and fall from heaven and his ultimate demise. Here is that passage as found in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 to 19. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, that's Isaiah, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought forth fire out of your midst. It consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the people are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end, and shall be no more forever. Some say that this Prince of Tyre is a prophetic revelation of Satan's history. It does contain several of the components of what we know happened in the Garden of Eden, if either the king of Babylon that I just talked about or the king of Tyre here had to be referring to Satan, this one would have my vote. But whether or not this fallen cherub is Satan, it definitely represents yet another regional, high-ranking, heavenly, not earthly prince. Now moving to the New Testament, Paul gives these geopolitical supernatural beings various titles. The beings he writes of in the following passage, specifically stating they are not made of flesh and blood, are clearly not human, and they rule 
in the heavenly places, not the earth. For those who are skeptical about the importance of the Unseen Realm storyline that's playing out, please take note of what Paul says here in Ephesians 3, verses 7 to 12. Paul is clearly making a statement that the story God has written and is telling is not only a story for the benefit of the inhabitants of the physical realm, God is also making things known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Here's the scripture that I'm talking about. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the ecclesia, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Well, how well this passage fits with our subject matter here. Paul not only wrote about the mystery he's talking about all through chapter 2 of Ephesians, but he started talking about the mystery in chapter 1 when he wrote that it would serve, quote, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, unquote. That's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul again sums up the mystery in verse 6 of chapter 3. The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's Ephesians 3, 6. That is quite a statement. God divided the nations at the Tower of Babel. He disinherited the Gentile nations and placed other beings over them. He only kept the nation of Israel for himself. Consistent with this, Paul tells the Gentile Ephesians they were once, quote, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promises and having no hope without God in this world, unquote. He tells them that they were once subjects of some spiritual being referred to as, quote, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, unquote. That's found in Ephesians 2, 2-3. Now, through Paul, God is revealing that his hidden, mysterious plan all along has been to reconcile the Gentile nations to himself through Jesus. The entire world will once again be subject to one ruler. Once Jesus returns, his kingdom will span the entire earth. According to other prophetic scripture, when Satan has been bound along with the Antichrist and thrown into hell, and when Babylon the Great has fallen, then Jesus' kingdom, which will again include all the Gentile nations, not just Israel, will begin. How is it that God is making his eternal plan known to the angelic heavenly authorities through the ecclesia? It's because the ecclesia is made up of individuals from every Gentile nation all of which were previously subject to all the various angelic principalities and powers of those nations. Now, 
the elect, those singled out and chosen for salvation, even though living in those same physical nations, are no longer subject to those principalities and powers, much to those principalities and powers' chagrin. The elect are now subject to only Jesus. The nations being given over to the divine authorities as their inheritance by Yahweh occurred at Babel. And it ends when Babel, a.k.a. Babylon, falls once and for all. Jesus will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. The elect, who were called the sons of God in the New Testament, will judge, rule, and reign with Jesus. That's what's being revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Jesus' kingdom will put them all out of a job. They're being replaced. This plan has always been in place. Paul calls it God's eternal purpose. From the time Yahweh gave over the nations to the spiritual order known as the sons of God following the Tower of Babel incident, until the time Jesus overcame death and sat down at the right hand of his Father and was given authority over the nations, the regional spiritual princes had exercised their authority over the Gentile nations relatively unhindered. They operated as though they were the top dogs with no one else to answer to. But now, every time Jesus purchases those who have been elect to salvation from among the Gentile nations of the earth and adds them to his ecclesia, it makes God's eternal plan to take back the nations known. There is nothing the regional princes can do when Jesus calls one out and purchases them from the bondage they have lived under. I'm sure it's always unwelcome news to a fallen regional prince of the spirit realm to find out that yet another one of their human minions has been claimed by Jesus. It's a constant reminder of what's to come in the end. Paul again refers to the beings in authority in the heavenly realm in Ephesians chapter 6. This is what that says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. I am aware that both passages in Ephesians have been argued to have different non-heavenly realm or spiritual meanings. The rulers and authorities are said by some to be humans and not spiritual beings. Perhaps they're only governmental rulers, religious authorities, or maybe they're those that teach concerning spiritual matters. Well, that's a tough sell for me, both on an exegetical level and on seeing the forest instead of the trees level. The text is straightforward. To say that these are religious teachers is to read something into the text that it does not plainly say. To say these are earthly rulers takes a lot of alternative logic-driven gymnastics to make a case, whereas understanding the plain text to say these are heavenly beings requires no such speculation. In context of the chapters leading up to this passage, as well as chapter 6, what Paul is saying fits well with the bigger picture that there are angelic powers and authorities in charge of geographical regions. 
Here's a quick rundown of this passage, Ephesians 6, verses 11 to 13. In verse 11, Paul is speaking of the schemes of the devil, a spiritual being who is considered the god of this world. Next, in verse 12, Paul makes it clear that those who he's talking about are not made of flesh and blood. There are no human beings, whether individually or corporately, that are not made of flesh and blood. Teachers, rabbis, religious leaders, governmental rulers, all are made of flesh and blood. On the other hand, we know that there are spiritual beings who qualify as rulers and princes that are not made of flesh and blood. Then, Paul almost redundantly specifies that these beings are spiritual forces of evil. Not only that, but spiritual forces of evil that are in heavenly places. Note they are spiritual, not physical forces. The term heavenly places comes from the Greek word epuranios, meaning above the sky. This phrase is literally translated spiritual wickedness above the sky. Following these verses in verses 14 to 18, Paul prescribes a set of armor that's not physical armor, but spiritual armor designed to withstand spiritual, not physical, attacks from the evil one, who is a spiritual being. I've applied this test before to how we interpret Scripture. It's the, what would the biblical author have to write to get us to take something literally and not change its meaning test? If Paul were trying to communicate to us that these are literal spiritual beings he is talking about and not earthly rulers, what more could he have said to convince us? He specified these are not mortal, fleshy humans. He's written they are spiritual, wicked beings existing in the heavens. There is absolutely no mention of religion or religious leaders or secular authorities in this passage. You got to try really really hard for this passage to not be about schemes of an unseen Satan and spiritual authorities who are not made of flesh and blood, who are forces of evil that exist in the heavenly realm, which we're to resist with non-physical weapons and armor. I'll talk more about what the angelic beings placed over the nations were supposed to be responsible for, but apparently failed at. But that'll be in a later podcast, which will focus on the various rebellions that have involved heavenly beings. We'll look at the clues from the passages in which God, through the biblical authors, appears to be chastising the spiritual beings for what they have done and what they have failed to do. What does all of this mean for the United States? Does not our Pledge of Allegiance say that we are a nation under God? And would not many still call us a Christian nation founded on Christian principles? Without going into too much depth, the simple answer is that Israel is the only nation which Yahweh, the Most High God, set aside or made holy for Himself. This means that until Jesus returns and puts all His enemies under His feet and reclaims the nations, including the U.S., for the kingdom of God— that the United States will remain subject to wicked regional principalities, powers, and authorities in the unseen realm, like every other nation. Could it be that some regional authorities are worse as far as the evil they're trying to accomplish than others? Absolutely. Some may be more overtly wicked. Some may be more direct in encouraging false god worship. Some may rely more on subtle deception 
and try to sell us on being a Christian nation despite incredible wickedness we've always been surrounded by. You know, there's also nothing in Scripture that says that every one of the regional princes has rebelled against Yahweh and has failed to do what they were charged with doing. It is possible that some are simply carrying out the instructions they were given according to who God made them to be. It may be that God recognized some nations had done more evil than others, so he purposefully put a prince over them that he created to deal with their regions as more of a disciplinarian. We just don't know. What we do know is all who did rebel will be one day dealt with. In the end, upon the return of Jesus, all the regional princes who have rebelled against Yahweh will be subdued by Jesus, bound up, and appropriately disposed of. We're told as much in 1 Corinthians 15, 24-25, where it says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. But what happens after Jesus returns and gets rid of all the hostile spiritual enemies of God? Who will fill in the vacuum created by these regional princes? Who will fulfill what was supposed to be their duties when they were placed in authority over the nations? The answer is the new king of the earth, Jesus. He will reclaim it all and deliver the earth, what will then have become the kingdom of God on earth, back to his father. All nations will be recalled, and the dividing of the nations that happened after Babel will be revoked. Jesus will rule this entire earth with a rod of iron. He will be the king, the final judge, and the high priest. However, there is something astounding in store for those who belong to Jesus. You've heard it said that those who belong to Jesus will rule and reign with him when he returns. But you may not have heard the other R word used, replace. I know this is a long ways from sitting on clouds and playing harps, But the called-out ones, the elect, who Peter calls the royal priesthood, will one day replace the spiritual regional authorities who have ruled since the time of the Tower of Babel. It will be a completely hostile takeover. It will be more of a hands-on approach, as the elect will rule and reign with Jesus while in their resurrected bodies. There will be mortals on the earth if you didn't know that, that the elect will be ruling and reigning over with Jesus. Listen to these scriptures that talks about that time that's coming. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, it tells us that, quote, The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Daniel seven twenty seven says that all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul informs us that the saints will judge the world. The Apostle Paul also tells us in 2 Timothy 2.12 that if we endure, we will also reign with the Messiah. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 28, we learn that it's not only Jesus who will rule with the rod of iron. Listen to the words of Jesus there. It says this, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, 
even as I myself has received authority from my Father. Up ahead a bit in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10 says that the elect will be kings and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And Revelation 22, verse 5 says that the elect will reign forever and ever. One day, after Jesus takes care of business, our fight will no longer be with unseen wicked rulers, authorities, and powers seated in the heavenlies. In Jesus' kingdom, the elect will serve as regional and local authorities, here on the earth, in the post-apocalypse world, under the authority of King Jesus. They will judge under the authority of Jesus, and they will act as priests, proclaiming the truth, again, under the authority of the high priest, Jesus. Now, I need to come back around to the book of Ephesians before we end and clear something up. When some hear Ephesians translated and interpreted for what it says, they react by thinking that the elect are to be actively engaged in some kind of spiritual warfare. We're to be seeking out spiritual enemies and subduing them on behalf of God. To be clear, you never heard me say that, because I don't believe that's what Paul's intention was in the book of Ephesians. The instructions there to put on the full armor of God appear to mainly be advice on how to recognize and withstand the schemes of Satan, how to be watchful and not be deceived. The weapons mentioned, including the sword, which is the Word of God, are primarily defensive weapons. Although the day will come when Jesus will wield His sword aggressively and offensively against His enemies as He brings them to their end, when He was here the first time and was tempted by Satan in the desert, He used the sword, or the word of God, defensively when tempted by Satan. So, if you think I'm advocating for engaging in some kind of holy roller spooky crusade in all this, please get over it. I am not. This episode has been an introduction to the storyline which explains some details behind why the Jews are called God's chosen people, and the Gentiles, being everybody else, are not. It explains how God's plan all along was to use Jesus to reconcile the Gentile nations back to himself. Yahweh made known his mysterious plan, which all counts on Jesus, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God is accomplishing this through the election of Ecclesia from all nations. Ephesians has been said by many to be a difficult book to understand because of the many spiritual references it contains. This is often addressed by trying to take the spiritual out of the book and replace it with a human, earthly interpretation. My challenge to you, or something I'd encourage you to do, is that after you get a really firm grasp on what I've talked about here, which is the part that spiritual geography plays and the mystery Paul talks about, whether you agree with it or not, to read through the book of Ephesians again and see if it doesn't make much more sense. How is it even possible that there exists such a lack of awareness of this purpose of the ecclesia, or how the mystery Paul wrote of fits in with the divine storyline? God is using the ecclesia to demonstrate to the wicked spiritual powers in high places that His Son is in charge. 
It's difficult to understand how anyone can ignore the importance of this or say that it's not essential to a more complete understanding of the gospel. It's because of this plan, which involves the reversal of what happened at Babel, that Gentiles can be reconciled to God and enjoy eternal life in his kingdom. It takes nothing away from the gospel, but only adds to its amazing richness. Finally, by understanding this storyline, we can better understand what it means when the elect are told they will rule and reign with Jesus in his kingdom. Well, I think this has been the longest episode yet, but it's important stuff. Next time, Lord willing, I'll talk about the various rebellions that have taken place in the unseen realm. Rebellions involving a serpent, a race of giants, and the sons of God who were put in charge of the nations. Until then, may God bless and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.